This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here as always. Thank you for joining. 888-900-3393. This was not unexpected. Wasn't sure where it would happen first, but you are seeing... The beginning of the revolt of the fourth branch of government, the permanent bureaucracy. If you want to understand the State Department, all you really have to know is the fame. Well, there there are two State Department attributed sayings in this country that really give you a good sense of what it's like over there. I spent a good portion of time in those uh, in, in those State Department conference rooms, meeting with people, talking to people, and. If you really want to know what's going on, all you have to do is know that they say that your options are for for national security, uh, suffer in silence, do some diplomacy or nuclear war. That's number one. So, of course, diplomacy is not just the most important thing. It's the only thing unless you just want to suffer or you want nuclear war. And then departments, uh, the department comes and goes. But I'm sorry. I had that completely wrong. Presidents come and go, but the department is forever. That's the other thing. There's a very imperious attitude you get over at State. And this always gets me in trouble because I know there are lots of great people at the State Department. I have many friends. and uh, It's a place that there are some incredibly talented, hardworking people. But the general ethos of the place is bureaucratic sloth. I'm just going to say it. Just is. Just the reality. A lot of red tape. A lot of slow-moving parts, too many parts, not a lot of accountability. So, with all that said, you look at the latest from the Washington Post here is that the State Department's entire senior management team has just resigned. As we know, Rex Tillerson has been given the job of running the State Department as Secretary of State. And while he's still just getting ready to get used to that or getting used to it, I suppose we find that inside foggy bottom, there are many people who have decided to resign unexpectedly. Uh, You have, this is the piece in the Washington post, Patrick Kennedy, who was the undersecretary for management. He's been in the job for nine years. Three of his top officials resigned unexpectedly. And then Assistant Secretary of State for Administration Joyce Ann Barr, Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs Michelle Bond, Ambassador Gentry Smith, 
director of the office of foreign ministry, et cetera, et cetera. All career foreign service officers serve under multiple administrations. Some of them are retiring. Some of them might be given assignments elsewhere in the foreign service. Now, you've, other than Kennedy, who came up uh, in the Hillary Clinton email investigation, hmm, interesting, isn't it? These are not people you would likely have heard of, uh, nor would you particularly care. But they're calling this a house cleaning of senior government officials. This is illustrating a much broader trend, a much more important point, and that is that the government, when I tell you that the government has been infiltrated by progressives in many of the same ways the universities have been infiltrated, not just infiltrated, but overtaken, they are the dominant ethos. They are the organizing principle now inside of these bureaucracies and institutions. You have a lot of folks who have all sorts of government power as bureaucrats, not elected power, and they find themselves in positions to dictate to others a lot of politically motivated policy. And they are the first ones to cry foul over a Hatch Act violation. Uh, the progressive mind likes bureaucracy and likes uh, likes to be in these large systems, uh, these these enormous institutions, because you can always force people to do things and then hide behind the system. There's an endless array of little rules and regulations inside state, CIA, all these places. They can drive you nuts. And they do. They drove me nuts. The amount of stupid stuff I had to deal with inside the CIA was truly mind-blowing. The sorts of things when you would turn around and ask, why do I have to do, I have to spend three hours doing this now? I have to spend my day doing that now? Uh, people would look at you and say, oh yeah, I know, it's terrible. Everyone, everyone would agree it was terrible and unnecessary and stupid and pointless and a waste of taxpayer dollars. Nobody would do anything about it. That's what it's like to be in a large federal bureaucracy. I'm sure it's the same pretty much everywhere. CIA is supposed to be lean and mean as, as federal bureaucracies go. I don't even want to know what it's like the Department of Agriculture or Commerce. I have a feeling it's not exactly a four-alarm fire in terms of the speed and efficiency with which everyone's acting day in and day out. But they have become part of the bureaucratic blob, and they see Trump coming in, and he offends their sensibilities. If you're a civil servant, you're supposed to do the job for the, be for the benefit of the American people. It's not supposed to change the moment that there's a new administration in place uh, that you don't like. You still have a job to do. These are not individuals who, at least in general, I have to look at each of their job titles, are senior enough that they're going to be implementing policy and this is going to be some moral objection for them. I don't see that happening. And I have to say, I, had, I have a little bit of this in me, too. I didn't resign right when Obama came into office. I grumbled a bit to friends and some colleagues that I trusted that uh, this guy, I'm sick of being told how he's a genius. I, I see no evidence for that. I'm sick of being told he's the smartest foreign policy president in history when he hasn't even taken the oath of office. I, I, I'm sick of all of it already. But I didn't resign because of that. It was just a happy coincidence. I went about my life. I would have kept working at the CIA under an Obama presidency. I did for a time. I wouldn't have wanted to have been Obama's CIA director. There's a difference. Appointees versus civil servants. Civil servants are supposed to do the job. The job is necessary regardless of 
who's in power in the White House and which administration's in charge. And that's the way this game is supposed to be played. That's the way this is supposed to happen. And yet, you have this newest data point that senior uh, that foreign service officers in regional bureaus have been leaving their posts or resigning. Uh, this the whole story, or the point of the story. Why is this a new story in the Washington Post? What they're saying is the experts, and you know the long and sordid history of progressives believing that expertise overrides individual rights, freedom, liberty, law, that the smartest people should make the decisions for everyone else, and they get to decide what, what means smartest. They have a long connection to this idea. So the story in the Washington Post, and you'll see more of these as well, is the true experts are fleeing these institutions because they refuse to work under a Trump administration. I think this has an interesting, an interesting corollary effect, or there's a side effect here that they're not taking into account, and that is this is exposing for the American people to see that there are very politicized civil servants who are supposed to be non-political in many branches of government. And the State Department is, a, is an especially left-wing place. You have to take the for, and if you're talking about foreign service officers, you have to take the foreign service exam. Uh, I was very close with a foreign service officer when I lived in D.C. for a while, so I, I, I know quite a bit about how their day-to-day uh, -day operates and what's required to get in. No more details on that one. Nonetheless, they think that this is showing the American people, look at how bad Trump is, our best and brightest are leaving government. I think this shows a lot of Americans, oh, so these places are really just extensions of college campuses now. These are now places where politics override the needs of the American people that are supposed to be tended to by these civil servants. That's why we are paying their we are literally paying their salaries with tax dollars. You would think that there's plenty of work for them to do. I would also say, especially for individuals who have a particular expertise, whether they're at state or anywhere else, if they think the Trump administration is inept, why not try to help? Why not do your part to keep the expertise in place that can make the government run better? But as I was saying to you, this is much more widespread than anybody who hasn't been in the government realizes. The amount of snickering I used to hear in CIA meetings about Bush, yep, just all of the, the snide comments and remarks, even up to pretty senior levels, versus the way that people would just, oh, Obama was giving them the, giving them the vapors. They just thought Obama was amazing, oh. He's the best. He's a genius. He's brilliant. It was impossible to ignore that. It was impossible not to notice that I was in rooms a lot of the time surrounded by leftists of one kind or another, whether I don't know how far left, but certainly not conservative constitutionalists. Changes a bit when you get into the National Clandestine or the Directorate of Operations. They changed the name back. NCS is what it was for a while. Uh, changes a bit. But for the analyst cadre, a lot of lefties, a lot of them. And that there are these senior officers leaving the State Department right when Trump comes in and they're losing ambassadors. 
plenty of people that can take that that Ambo's place. A lot of State Department officers wait their whole careers to get a chance to be an ambassador. So I am sure it will be just fine. It's all part of the bigger story, though. And the story is that the smart, good people won't serve under Trump because he's so bad. Well, what does it say about them that they won't even wait until any policies are implemented? And they're supposed to be in non-political positions. They are functionaries. They are bureaucrats. I'm not talking about Am- Ambos now. That's a little different. But for these State Department management bureaucrats, they can't handle the heat under a Trump administration. They can't stick around and try to make things run a little better. At least give it a shot. This is how much they are dedicated Uh, This is how much they are dedicated to the idea of a Democrat as opposed to a Republican. They will leave their cushy post. They will step down. They will step aside. I do want to give them some credit for sticking to their principles. I've said before, I I find it very disconcerting that there are so few resignations, so much complaining via leaks to the press about various administrations, but so few senior level resignations. You don't see that people resigning in protest of what's going Given all the debates we've had over national security and foreign policy of the last decade, how many high-profile resignations have you seen over the last 15 years? Now, some of these State Department officers are retiring, some of them are moving around, but I do think it's interesting that they're not, we're not talking about the head of a department, that's a political appointee that has to implement policy of the presidency. We're talking about people who are lower down the scale. They were supposed to be just doing a job that was for the benefit of the American people. But many of them seem to think they were doing a job that was to the benefit of the Obama administration. And that's it. Or they've been so polluted with anti-Republican and anti-Trump hatred that they don't think there's any good they could do if they stayed in their positions at the State Department. It's a sad commentary. I think it's a much sadder commentary on what's happened to the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy, than it is about the Trump administration. And I will admit that there are some senior appointees in the Trump administration that would not have made my list. That said, there are some others that would have been very high on the list. And I don't get to make those calls. It's imperfect, but are we judging it by what standard? Valerie Jarrett, David Axelrod, Ben Rhodes. Look at the most important figures in the Obama administration. Did we ever get all these stories about how they were either partisan hacks or completely unqualified or no, none of that. It was all hope and change. The world's going to be amazing. Everything is awesome. Obama's the best. And then it wasn't. And with Trump, it's the exact opposite. Everything is terrible. Everything is awful. All of his appointees stink. And if you like him, you're the worst. And when they find stories like this to write about at the State Department, that's the purpose. That's the, that's the reason behind all this. Uh, 888-900-3393 on the phones. Team, I've got a lot more show. Stay with me. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. One of the big issues that's already come up has to do with vetting of refugees. Trump saying that there are seven countries in total that are uh, not going to be able to get visas into this country for a period of time. He was on ABC in an interview with David Muir. I just feel like his, I don't know, that guy's very, that guy's very Zoolander, but nonetheless. And this is what Trump had to say about extreme vetting. We're going to have extreme vetting in all cases, and I mean extreme. And we're not letting people in if we think there's even a little chance of some problem. Are you because in, are you we, in are, we are excluding certain countries, but for other countries, we're going to have extreme vetting. It's going to be very hard to come in. Right now, it's very easy to come in. It's going to be very, very hard. I don't want terror in this country. Are you at all concerned it's going to cause more anger among Muslims around anger. the world? There's plenty of anger right now. How can you have more? You don't think it'll look, exacerbate look, David, the problem? David, I mean, I know you're a sophisticated guy. The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Well, you think this is going to cause a little more anger? The world is an angry place. No foreigner has a right to come to the United States. This is this is what the Democrats don't seem to understand or they pretend at least they don't understand it. This objection that there should be uh, what visas for people from anywhere. Do Iranians get to come here with the same frequency and the same ease as Englishmen? Is, Is that where we think this is all heading? Is that the way it's supposed to be? Are are we going to treat uh those who want a visa from Israel, the same as someone who wants a visa from North Korea. That's how we're going to operate. Of course, we make distinctions between countries. And he's not basing it solely on religion. He's basing it on the threat profile from these countries that do have. Just look at a look at the State Department, State Department again. Look at the State Department country reports on terrorism. Where is terrorism happening? Terrorism is happening in places like and then you go down the list. Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan. You look at these countries and you understand very quickly that there is a very serious problem. Uh, Syria. And they have already used refugee flows in order to infiltrate Europe. And there have been mass casualty attacks in Europe. And there are very real political ramifications for the European governments from those attacks, as well as civil rights discussions and clampdowns on liberty and Remember, a terrorist attack is most horrible for the families of those lost, but there are also ramifications for the broader society, and the terrorists know that. This is why terrorism is different than a, you know, a drug deal gone bad where a few people get shot. Okay, well, that's violence, and that's criminality, and we need to deal with that. 
But five people shot by a maniac in a shopping center screaming Allahu Akbar and saying there's going to be a whole lot more of me and you better keep surveillance on everybody who's thinking about doing this is quite different from uh, a one-off you know, bank robbery gone, gone wrong. Right? We all understand this. The bank robber's not trying to create a societal upheaval. The bank robber doesn't have millions of people cheering him on. The bank robber doesn't have brothers in arms, perhaps already infiltrated in the society, who are going to be robbing banks for the next, oh, millennia. That's not the way it works. So we understand that there are distinctions with these things. Uh, But people just hate anything that Trump is doing on the security front. He also talked about torture. Waterboarding is not torture. I know this gets everyone upset, but not everyone. But waterboarding is not torture. Torture is a very broad term. If waterboarding is torture, well, then I also think that we need to talk about the psychological torture of being in federal prison, period. The fact of the matter is we do waterboarding to U.S. military in training. We don't electrocute them in sensitive areas. That's torture. Journalists are signing up to get waterboarded to know what it feels like. They're not saying, sign me up. I want bamboo pushed under my fingernails. That's torture that we have to keep having the same discussion uh, when we had how many people were actually waterboarded? A handful. I don't even think they're going to bring it back. But if they do, are we going to pretend that this is the end of Western civilization as we know it? I don't know. It doesn't upset me as much as it upsets a lot of other people. I do think, though, you're not going to be able to do it because who wants to be in charge of that program because the next Democrat might prosecute. All right. Uh, We've got a lot more team. Uh, Have a Freestyle Friday guest move to a Thursday coming up here, so it'll be a surprise. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Stephen Zalaga. He is an analyst in the aerospace industry for over two decades, covering missile systems and the international arms trade. He has served with the Institute for Defense Analysis, and he's the author of numerous books on military technology and military history. He's here to talk about his brand new book that just came out this week, Panzer Grenadier versus U.S. Armored Infantrymen, European Theater of Operations 1944. Stephen, thank you for joining. Hi, how you doing? Good. So uh, tell us about the book. Um, it's part of a series that looks at different types of infantry in combat through the ages. Uh, this one's a little bit different. It's not conventional infantry. It's armored infantry, meaning the infantry that serves alongside tanks, usually the types of soldiers that uh, go into battle on uh, tracked armored vehicles. Uh, in the case of World War II, it was on half-tracks. And so the you do you do a comparison a contrast of the U.S. U.S. armored infantrymen with the Panzer Grenadier in the book? Is that do you look at the difference in tactics, gear? What are some of the things you break down? Yeah, that's exactly it. The idea in the uh, series is to look at um, the different opposing types of infantry um, and to look at them from various aspects: uh, the training, the tactics, the type of equipment they use, and rather than just have a, sort of a bland 
comparison of the technical points, the uh, the book takes three particular battles that involved uh, those type of forces on both sides and then takes a look at how well they performed um, and whether the contest was or the outcome of the contest was due to tactics or equipment or broader issues. And so in this particular book, um, there were three instances that were looked at. Uh, one of them was a uh, battle during Operation Cobra in Normandy in the summer of 1944. The second one was a lesser-known battle by Patton's Third Army against the uh, Fifth Panzer Army in Lorraine in September of 1944. And then the final one is a better-known campaign, the Ardennes Campaign. It takes a look at some of the fighting near Saint-Vif that involved the uh, Fuhrer Begleit Brigade, which was a uh, uh, it had been Hitler's personal bodyguard, but it was converted into a Panzer Grenadier unit and thrown into the Ardennes offensive. So that's the way that it looks at the um, the different opposing forces. What tell us about that uh, that last unit? You said it was Hitler's personal bodyguard that was then thrown into the Ardennes offensive. Uh, did they w- were they a, a very useful unit on that front, or w- were there disadvantages that they brought to bear that the generals didn't expect right away? How, how did they perform in combat? Um, that unit actually, rather surprisingly, didn't perform especially well, and it was actually heavily criticized by the other German units. And part of the reason was is that even though there were a lot of very experienced troops within the unit, it had never really fought in combat. Um, as I described it, it was originally a uh, guard unit, actually formed under Rommel. It was unusual in that most of Hitler's guard units were Waffen-SS, members of the SS. This particular unit was actually formed as part of the regular army. Um, and so, as I say, there were some elements of the unit that were uh, combat experience, but the unit as a whole had never fought together in combat. And by this stage of the war, the German army is in pretty desperate shape as far as equipment. So to give you an example, as I mentioned, the book deals with panzer grenadiers, that is um, uh, infantry that would fight from armored half-tracks. Well, of the, uh, the three component elements within that particular brigade, one of them was still riding around on bicycles. So that gives you some idea of the type of equipment problems that the German army was facing at that particular point in time. So the the unit um, did finally overcome the American defenses that were on the west side of Saint-Vif, but at a fairly significant cost and certainly not in the timeline that the Germans had expected. How do the, uh, the, the equipment and the tactics of armored infantry in this period, 1944, against the German Panzer Grenadier, uh, looking at it, I mean, if you have to tell me, what, what are the advantages and what are the drawbacks that both sides had when they were squaring off against each other? What, what would be your analysis? Well, there's two big issues when dealing with the World War II forces. The first of them is that this idea of mechanized infantry combat is brand new. So part of the issue is just equipment. How do you move the infantry so that they can fight alongside the tanks? And the common method during World War II were these armored half-tracks. But the problem with them is or was that they weren't really as mobile as tanks. They had wheels in the front. They had a track section in the back. They were not fully tracked like the tanks were. And as a result, in a certain type of soft ground conditions, such as snow or mud, the type of conditions that you would have seen in the Ardennes in December 1944, they couldn't really keep up with the tanks that, uh, that easily. So that's one of the issues. The second issue is that Armored infantry is usually part of an armored division. So typically, for example, in the American case, you're going to have three battalions of armored infantry in an armored division. But that is a very light 
infantry element within a division to to give it some comparison a regular infantry um, division will have nine battalions of infantry so they're certainly useful they're part of um combined arms they're they're part of a mobile strike force but on some missions there's just not enough infantry on the ground within these units and so they have some disadvantages they're they tend to be very effective in the offensive because they're they're mobile they tend to have a lot of firepower uh, but in defensive missions, oftentimes they have problems simply because there's not enough riflemen there. A lot of uh, military buffs in this audience, military historians, uh, amateur, and and I think even some professional. Uh, what are the other books you've written in this series? They want to check them out as well. Um, there's two parallel Osprey series. Uh, one series is called Combat, which is this book is a part of, and that is the infantry versus infantry um, uh, subject matter. There's a parallel series called Duel, which tends to be hardware versus hardware. So uh, my most recent book in the Duel series was called Bazooka versus Panzer. And what that deals with is one of the iconic USGI weapons, World War II, the uh, Bazooka anti-tank rocket launcher, and how it performed in combat during World War II against German Panzer units. And that's another um, that's another particular one that uh, used uh, the Ardennes fighting as an example. It used the uh, battle at Krenkel Rosheroth, not a particularly well known battle, but uh, a very important one. And the um, the last one. I In your mind, what was the most important single most important single mechanized uh, mechanized unit adv- advance that, or advantage that either side had in the Second World War? What would it have been? Um, the advantages that they had oftentimes came down more to uh, the the skill and tactical uh, uh, adeptness that the units showed in combat. It, it's hard to point to a particular one. The German Army, for example, in the early summer of 1944 was quite good. They gave the British in Normandy a very rough time, the, their armored units. But as time went on, especially by the time of the Ardennes, and certainly even more so after the Ardennes, the German army is in desperate shape. They're, they're, they're short of skilled manpower. They're short of equipment, short of fuel, short of ammo. So a lot of times the, um, the, when you look at just the, the paper issues, you know, the strength and type of equipment, it would seem as though the German army was quite good. But in practice, they oftentimes didn't perform as well as might be expected. And it was largely due to the human element, um, the, the quality of the troops, the amount of training they had. And then, of course, other factors, the amount of ammunition they had, the amount of equipment that they had. All right. Stephen Zalaga is the author of Panzer Grenadier versus U.S. Armored Infantryman, European Theater of Operations, 1944, out in paperback now. Stephen, thank you so much for calling in. We appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Phone lines open, team, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Very interesting exchange last night on the uh, Tucker Carlson show, Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News, and a uh, very interesting exchange between Tucker and Jonathan Gruber. You know, the one who's like, the stupidity of the American people is like an advantage. That guy. Tucker was pushing back on, on a whole bunch of uh, things that Gruber was 
trotting out there. Um, I wanted to play this exchange for you, then we'll, we'll dig into a bit more. I thought this law was supposed to help everybody. This law was never supposed to help everybody, Tucker. That wasn't the design. The law was actually explicitly designed first in Massachusetts and then for the nation to leave the vast majority of Americans alone. People who had health insurance that worked for them through their employer, the government, were not designed to be affected by this law, by and large, in the near term. They were hoped to benefit in the long term through lowering costs. But in the near term, the law was designed to fix what was wrong with our system, which was focused on the 20% of Americans who did not have health insurance or were buying it through a broken non-group insurance system. The okay, so, was not, and that was the design of the law. Okay, so let me, that's not at all what I heard the president at the time say, at all, and I was there. But, okay, fine point. Let me ask you, this is my sanity test. Are you really saying there are no victims of this law? No, that it's not either. I'm not, I'm not okay. saying so that. So who are the victims? Who's been hurt by Obamacare? Here you go. Who are Who's the victims? This is good. been hurt by this Obamacare is, is two groups. One is the wealthiest Americans, uh, the top 2% of Americans who had to pay new taxes. And uh -huh. second is very healthy individuals who benefited from a previously discriminatory insurance market. Stop. Healthy people benefited from a discriminatory insurance market. Oh, you mean if you're young and healthy, you could buy a plan that wouldn't necessarily cover you for much unless you had catastrophic injury? He's admitting to you, and he, it's amazing. You should go and listen to the whole interview because of the language that Gruber uses. Uh, there's a lot of uh, nonsense piled in there. But he is admitting to you that this is all just a cost-shifting mechanism, that this is redistribution of wealth via the healthcare system. And another excellent—so watch the whole Tucker interview last night with Gruber— because Tucker gets him on a, on a few very key points. This notion that it wasn't designed for... It, why does it have to affect the whole healthcare system? And why was it... I forget how many thousands of pages now. Over a thousand pages, three thousand pages, a thousand... Too many pages. Why would it have all of that? What's the purpose? What's the point? Why would it need to affect so much of the insurance market if it's only for those people? Ah, it's about a lot more than that, isn't it? And for the... 17 million or 20 million, whatever the number is, their quote, they say 30. That's that's not true. Uh, but the 17 million people that get their insurance via Obamacare in some direct capacity, a majority of them get Medicaid, which is insurance for the which is insurance for the poor. And that's so that's a vast majority of them. So they just expanded Medicaid. So that's just that's just free. That just means the government's paying your medical bills now. And then for the rest of them, uh, they have these exchange, these plans bought on exchanges that are just really bad. And various lobbyists, and Tucker got to this later in the interview, various lobbyists have made sure that their fee, their services for their particular industry or their sector of the healthcare industry are covered. So there was a big giveaway effect for a lot of the players in the insurance market that were able to get a seat at the table and make sure that their services would be covered. And then they force people on the exchanges to buy those plans that force them to cover things they don't want to cover. So that's also a part of this. Excellent piece as well, I would recommend for all of you uh, at com, or she's syndicated in a whole bunch of different newspapers. But she talks about what it's like to be. I didn't, I didn't realize that Anne was on, uh, Anne had to buy because she's somebody who doesn't work for a, a big employer. She works for herself, which is very nice. But she's had to buy Obamacare plans. And she points out that, first of all, the people that are working to pay for these terrible plans aren't able to go and march and 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 complain about how their health care stinks. I think that's a very important point that she makes. 
And then she talks about who really gets who really gets benefits from this. She's paying huge premiums. I, I really I mean, it's I know some of you because of Anne and the whole Trump thing have issues uh, with her analysis of late. I think she's I think she's great. Uh, and I think you should check out her piece because no matter what what she says about Obamacare, everyone needs to know. If you don't personally have any experience with Obamacare, you'll read this and you'll be terrified of it. She said to change her plan three times uh, because they keep shifting around what's an acceptable plan and what's not. And, of course, the government that puts the Obamacare out there, they won't live under Obamacare. So we all know that there's a hypocrisy that this entire thing is built on in the first place. And she just goes goes to town on it. Says that you're paying, in her case, like seven hundred dollars a month for a for a plan that no doctors will take, that you want to go see, and uh, you're paying seven hundred dollars a month, and your deductible is like seven or eight thousand dollars. So you're paying a lot of money. You can't see the doctors you want to see, and if you do get sick, unless you get catastrophically sick. And then, by the way, you're still not going to the hospital you want to go to or seeing the doctor you want to see. You're seven or $8,000 out of pocket before they kick in anything. And you have no choice. You're forced to buy into this. This is why people hate Obamacare. And Gruber, in the interview with Tucker last night, was saying, well, it's because people don't know enough about it. No, I think they know plenty about it. It's garbage. It is crap. You know, a big part of all of all this, the mentality behind Obamacare, are two things. One is the soak the rich, other people should pay for health care mentality, which the middle class is actually paying for the health care of the poor. That's where the majority of, uh, you know, when you look at the, the, the pinch of Obamacare and who's paying their higher premiums. And yeah, if you're making $10 million a year, you don't care about the Obamacare tax. But if you're not getting a subsidy and you're in the individual market and you're just a working person, you do care about the Obamacare tax or the Obamacare um, uh, mandate. And which really is a tax, right? That's what we found out. You can either pay the government a fee in the form of taxation or you can get a crappy plan. But this needs to go away. This is very bad. And another part of this, and I don't have time to elaborate on it right now, it's just the government pretending they can shield people from bad decisions. You know, if you want to buy a plan where you cover the first $5,000 of your health expenses year in, year out, but anything above that, you've got a really good plan, you should be able to do that you should be able to do that the government shouldn't be calling all these shots for you so yeah there we have it uh team we got a lot more coming up don't go anywhere 888-900-3393 hour two just a few minutes you're listening to buck sexton on the blaze radio network